Learn the multi-jurisdictional issues and challenges facing our international businesses with insights and interviews in a global perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford, coming up right now. Welcome, everyone, to Global Perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford. This morning's guest is Janet Lord. She is a senior fellow for Harvard Law School on the Project on Disability. She also serves on the board of directors of Amnesty International USA. Academically, she has several law degrees, including an LLM in International Comparative Law from George Washington University, an LLM and an LLB from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And she was very involved in the drafting of the UN Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Adriana. Thank you so much for having me on. Janet, could you tell us a little bit about your role and your experience with this convention? I'd be delighted to. Yes, almost a year ago, a couple of days after 9-11 in 2001, I left the World Bank to start a job on September 15th of 2001 at an international organization focused on the rights of landmine survivors. In that job, I was director of advocacy and legal counsel, and we had been involved in of the mine ban treaty, uh, part of the international campaign to ban landmines. And uh, that fall, the government of Mexico in 2001 introduced a resolution before the UN General Assembly calling for greater attention to the rights of persons with disabilities and to start setting up a process where proposals could be considered to actually draft a treaty. And my organization was uh, contacted by the government of Mexico back in 2001, and it took everyone in the global disability community by surprise that that Mexico would would start this initiative. And uh, it was really quite fascinating because typically this is not how a treaty process gets started. It's usually pushed uh, by non-governmental organizations um, or, or other types of groups. But in this case, it was the government of Mexico and the then President Fox who was interested in this issue. And this was being also pushed domestically within Mexico by some, some pretty high-level folks, one of whom was had run for president himself um, and who was uh, an advocate with, with disability. Um, and he was pressing for for Mexico to really support this issue at the international level, as well as working to to clean up their own laws domestically around disability rights. What effect does this treaty have, and does this have on other countries in Latin America? Did other countries also adopt this, or what? That, that's a great question. Mexico was incredibly strategic in garnering support at first instance uh, throughout Latin America. So Ecuador very quickly came on board with the process, and a number of other countries uh, around the the region, Costa Rica, Brazil, Argentina, a number of other countries in the region. And then Mexico started to work through its embassies around the world to garner support for this issue. It didn't take too long. There were a lot of countries very supportive uh, and understanding that at that time, disability law and policy was really underdeveloped. There were fewer than 50 countries around the world that had any semblance of disability rights laws or protections. And yet around the world, persons with disabilities 
um, at that time and, and continuing to this day, tend to live in poverty. They are disproportionately impacted um, by violence, by natural disaster, by armed conflict, um, and are typically out of education, unemployed, and highly stigmatized in their communities. So a real human rights issue, uh, but one that garnered the attention and support of many countries. So China came on board, and uh, a number of African countries came on board. And for the first time, uh, countries in the Arab region uh, became very energized and supportive of this issue, knowing that their own legal systems were really not addressing um, this issue at all. How about the EU? The European Union. The European Union, very interesting case, because this was the first human rights treaty where the European Union was uh, participating as a union, as a regional integration organization. So the EU was engaged, um, and then members of the EU also engaged separately, give, uh, putting forward their own uh, positions and delegations, but the EU was also negotiating uh, as a block, and that was very interesting. And initially, uh, the EU was not particularly supportive of this treaty process. It came out of the blue. They didn't quite understand why Mexico was pushing this forward, uh, and there was some initial resistance on the part of the EU and some of the other developed countries that had, in fact, strong domestic disability law. Um, so that was an interesting part of the process. And we had to push as advocates and uh, like-minded governments, we had to push pretty hard uh, during the first meeting of the ad hoc committee that, that put together this treaty. Uh, we had to push very hard during the first two sessions. Uh, but we did get over that hurdle. And uh, ultimately, the EU, countries around Europe, uh, Canada, and, and other countries, Australia, New Zealand, did come on board. But it took a took a little while, uh, and governments at first were, were rather skeptical of the idea that an, another international human rights treaty would make a difference. And where are we today? What are some of the challenges that we're facing now? You know, and, and how do these, I guess, how does this impact our companies? How, how does this well, impact our employees, especially here in the U.S.? Adriana, great set of questions. Um, and I could not have imagined the impact that this treaty would have back in 2001 when we started this process. Um, this is the second most rapidly ratified human rights convention in the history of the UN. Uh, so this treaty wow. was adopted in 2006, so about five years of negotiation, which might sound like a long time, but it's it's really extremely fast in terms of other human rights treaties. So it was adopted 2006. It entered into force in 2007. And we now have well over 160 countries around the world and every part of the world that have ratified this convention. So it's been a, an incredibly educative process for governments as well as for civil society organizations. By the end of the treaty negotiation, not only did we have uh, you know, over 130 governments very actively participating, we had, of course, UN agencies and other, other uh, intergovernmental organizations participating, but we had over 800 representatives of uh, disability organizations from around the world. 
So we started off as a civil society group with about 30 people in a little side room, uh, and we ended up with hundreds and hundreds of, of advocates. So this was a process that persons with disabilities and representing the incredible diversity of the disability community um, were, were there, were present, and were very actively involved in shaping this treaty. So that uh, that's remarkable in and of itself. Um, mm-hmm. And around the world, we have seen governments take this on board. Uh, many governments that really were had a blank slate, nothing on the books about disability rights, um, but working together with civil society, governments around the world, uh, including in post-conflict affected countries, very poor countries, um, up to the most developed countries have, have worked in concert to either develop totally new disability rights laws or to improve upon, you know, further reform whatever existing laws that, that they had. And that's been really remarkable. It would have been hard to imagine that the treaty would have had that kind of impact when we started this process uh, back in 2001. Yeah, that is amazing. What what are some of those challenges that they're facing today? Where do you see countries that are perhaps stumbling or struggling the most today? Well, Adriana, you asked uh, about the kind of impact that this treaty would have, for example, on employers. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, many of the listeners may, in fact, be uh, familiar with the Americans with Disabilities Act um, and its role in really bringing persons with disabilities uh, into education, but also into employment and really addressing the, the fundamental barriers that persons with disabilities face. Now, most of my work is um, done in developing countries. And I can tell you that the stigma uh, and discrimination uh, against persons with disabilities is really severe. So in developing countries, we know Mm -hmm. that fewer than 2% of kids with disabilities are able to go to school. Uh, Now, that is an incredible development problem. And it's a development problem because if you have a child with a disability who can't go to school, what does that mean for the parent who needs to work, who needs to make a living? What does that mean for uh, for the child who grows up without an education and with potentially without any opportunity to get into uh, a, a good job and, and to make a living? So uh, there are tremendous challenges. Uh, we've started to, to address them in this country, um, and I think – in many ways, this country continues to be an incredible model for uh, countries around the world realizing that persons with disabilities need to be included in education, they need to be educated, trained, and they need to be working uh, in the workplace, doing the the broad, diverse range of work that that they can do. Um, And for folks who have more intensive support needs or who may have multiple disabilities, we are seeing some progress made, including in developing countries, um, with models of supported employment, for example. Uh, and I think this treaty has served as the impetus uh, for some really exciting initiatives that are getting kids with disabilities into education, into the schools, and then ultimately into the workplace. And uh, this is a process, takes a long time, 
Uh, but we're starting to see uh, a lot of attention being paid to this um, domestically and even in, in some of the poorest countries around the world. What role do we see the International Labor Organization playing in this? The International Labor Organization was involved from the very beginning because they have uh, a, a fairly robust office that looks at things like addressing the barriers that persons with disabilities face in employment, um, looking at uh, vocational rehabilitation perhaps for, for individuals who have been injured and who need to be retrained and so forth. So they were greatly involved in the drafting of the treaty uh, and really pushed the provisions in the treaty on the right to work and the concept of accessibility and making a workplace environment accessible to persons with disabilities, not only in terms of removing physical barriers uh, to the workplace, but also in terms of looking at things like communication uh, for deaf people or uh, in our country, we're seeing uh, persons with uh, low vision or blind persons uh, able to do an incredible range of different jobs, sometimes utilizing uh, technology and software applications and so forth. Um, so the ILO was, was, was greatly involved in pushing this issue around uh, ensuring non-discrimination you know, in domestic laws and ensuring that this treaty also included this concept developed uh, in our country, uh, in the United States, this concept of reasonable accommodation. Can you explain that, elaborate on that a little bit for our listeners that don't know what reasonable accommodations means and what, you know, where are the parameters? Absolutely. So this concept of reasonable accommodation uh, is, is part of the duty to, to make a workplace um, or other places of, of public accommodation accessible. And really what it means is that um, uh, as long as a, a no undue burden or disproportionate burden is placed on the employer, then the employer needs to take some reasonable steps, reasonable measures in order to make their uh, workplace or their facilities uh, or their public accommodations, such as restaurants, open and accessible to as much as possible to all people. Um, and what we do know uh, with regard to research in the United States around the Americans with Disabilities Act is that the vast majority of reasonable accommodations are at very low cost, under $100, or cost absolutely nothing at all. Um, so there's a lot of mis misinformation around reasonable accommodations. Um, uh, but what we're finding in, in schools, in the workplace, uh, not only in this country but around the world, that uh, once uh, an organization and a workplace or an employer understands what this is and starts accommodating employer, employees with disabilities, the diversity of their workplaces increased and the experience of all workers is, is uniquely enhanced. That's wonderful. You you mentioned, Janet, that 2% of individuals with disabilities in developing countries are getting education and, and actually uh, uh, integrating into the workforce. What about in the United States? What percentage of our individuals with disabilities actually are being educated and are actually integrating into the workplace? 
That's a great question. Unfortunately, we know that the, the, the majority of persons with disabilities in the United States are not employed, and that is a huge problem because these folks want to be employed. We're making headway in terms of inclusive education, um, and uh, more and more students with disabilities graduating from high school and then entering higher education. So we've made tremendous progress. A lot more progress needs to be made. People with disabilities still face discrimination um, in uh, getting uh, getting employment, uh, and that's a problem. And um, there's still the case that uh, claims of employment discrimination on the basis of disability overwhelmingly fail. They lose in court, um, even even against uh, great evidence of of instances of discrimination. So that's that's an issue. Um, that we still struggle with in this country, um, but we've made we have made tremendous progress and and continue to do so. Where are some misconceptions, and can you shed some light on those misconceptions? Because maybe our listeners, someone within their office, and maybe we could shed some light on on some of these misconceptions and uh, and help help with this process. Sure, I think there's still a lot of uh, a stigma uh, around disability. Um, and, you know, and people make a lot of assumptions about what a person with a disability can or can't do. And we see this all the time. Um, so there are lots of, of, of misconceptions about the cost of providing a reasonable accommodation. There are lots of misconceptions around, you know, the difficulty. It might, it might be very difficult, complicated, expensive to bring someone with a disability into the workplace. I think there's a fear factor, too. Um, now, as more and more kids grow up uh, in a diverse uh, educational system that has uh, kids with disabilities, I think uh, slowly the, the understanding will, will be increased and enhanced. Um, but we still have a situation where, you know, people my age um, grew up and we didn't go to school with kids with disabilities. They were in separate schools. Um, and so there's a lack of understanding, there's a lack of awareness, there's a, lot, a lack of knowledge about um, the incredible abilities of persons with disabilities and what they contribute to the workplace. Now, we're starting to see studies come out show very clearly um, the commitment of workers with disabilities, um, the retention of workers with disabilities, lower turnover rates, higher job satisfaction where they're appropriately accommodated, People with disabilities make great workers. Right, and when they have one disability, their other senses are heightened. Well, I, I, I think you're right. And what my colleague, uh, Michael Stein, Professor Michael Stein at the, at the Harvard Project on Disability says, and he's a wheelchair user. He was uh, uh, is a graduate of Harvard Law School. Uh, and he always says, you know, look, persons with disabilities are great problem solvers. That and makes for a good worker, a very good employee. That's what we need in the workplace, people who can innovatively solve problems. Well, uh, and I think he's absolutely right. There are a lot of things that we probably don't you know, understand or appreciate unless you actually have a coworker or someone in your family that you know that has a disability and you can actually experience that. Um, yeah, ab absolutely. Um, when I, a few years ago, I was working for a small international law and development firm, and, uh, and we brought in a, a absolutely fabulous woman right out of uh, a law school 
who um, is legally blind, has low vision. And there were a lot of misconceptions within my company about, oh, gosh, how are we going to accommodate her? Oh, gee, this seems so complicated. Oh, she's going to, you know, take a lot more time to do her work. No, I think they soon realized that that was absolutely not true. She needed a software program on her computer, and, and that was it, and a little help using, for example, the copier. Not so easy for her to use the photocopier. Um, you know, not so easier for her always to fill out forms. So a little bit of help here and there. We all need help in the workplace. Um, so she needed no, mm-hmm. no greater assistance than, than any of us, really. The other point I would make, Adriana, is that persons with disabilities themselves are disproportionately impacted by sexual violence, um, by domestic violence, by caregiver violence. Uh, We've got a huge problem in our nursing homes um, that are completely inadequately staffed, really have the supports they need to do their job uh, properly. Uh, So uh, there are a lot of issues that uh, we try to address in the, the drafting of the disability treaty uh, to, to look at what are the barriers that people with disabilities face in society and how can they be dismantled. And as your point about awareness and education is, is spot on. You can't do that by simply adopting a law or a policy. Education and awareness and looking at systemic change is what we need. Um, and we actually have in this treaty, uh, it's the first human rights treaty ever to have a very detailed provision on awareness, is recognizing that very often uh, where stigma and discrimination uh, is flourishing, there is an incredible lack of understanding and awareness. And those are the kind of things that that we're really working on, uh, working to educate employers, working to educate educators around disability and disability inclusion. And we can do better. Well, Janet, glad to have you on the show. We'd like to have you on again. Um, Thank you for joining us and and actually spending time with our listeners. You've been listening to Janet Lord, who is a senior fellow at the Harvard Law School for Project on Disability and a board member with Amnesty International USA. Thank you, Janet, for joining us today. Thank you, Adriana, very much. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to A Global Perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford on the Manufacturing Talk Radio Network at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.